Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 641 for the 5th of May, 2019. This week, if you're planning to commit a crime, you might want to leave your phone at home because Google's Sensor Vault knows where you are, where you were, and how long it took you to get from there to here. Sensor Vault has data going back several years, and in some situations, police can access it. In short circuits, internet crimes cost individuals and companies nearly $3 billion last year, and that's just the crimes that were reported. Changing passwords frequently has been promoted as a good security measure, but that is no longer considered to be correct. In spare parts, only on the website, Turtle Beach has released a moderately priced set of headphones for gamers, and they include a feature that's been available only in high-priced headphones until now. Geometiles represent an attempt to make math concepts interesting and fun for students. And Creative Technologies updated Pebble Plus speakers will be of interest to those who want good computer sound, but have a limited budget. We carry smartphones around because they help us stay in touch with friends, allow us to purchase things without a credit card or cash, and guide us to where we're going. A lot of information is collected and stored along the way. If you're planning to commit a crime, eh, maybe you should leave the phone at home. The old German Democratic Republic, GDR, also known as East Germany, developed what was essentially the gold standard in keeping track of people. Stasi, the state security service, employed nearly 100,000 people full-time and had more than 150,000 unofficial informants to spy on citizens. The GDR had a population of about 17 million, so the Stasi had one full or part-time observer for every 70 people. Today, Google knows more about you than the Stasi could ever have hoped to know about citizens of the GDR. That could be bad or good, depending on how the information is used. New York City criminal law attorney Robert Stahl says that the use of geolocation technology allows law enforcement to locate suspects and potential witnesses to current and past crimes and raises several privacy concerns, as well as what he calls serious legal issues. The problem Stahl sees is that warrants issued for this type of information can reveal people who have no knowledge of the crime being investigated. If location history, which is off by default, is turned on, Google collects data when you're logged into your account if the phone has any location-enabled Google apps. Information is collected even when you're not using those apps. Google uses the data to serve ads and to note when people enter an advertiser's store. The information is also aggregated and then used to establish the estimates that Google provides about how busy a store might be when you search for the store online. Knowing that a store is generally busy between 3 and 4 p.m., but not very busy between 2 and 3 p.m., might help you to plan a shopping trip. And Google can show you where you've been. Maybe if you ever need an alibi, Google location history might be your friend. The information is stored in Google's Sensor Vault, 
and you can see what it knows about you. So I decided to see what it knows about me. I took a look at the full history and got a page with a lot of little red dots on it all over central Ohio. The red dots show places that I've been in the past several years. Now, I don't always take my phone with me, so Google generally doesn't have a record of my visits to the gym, for example, except for the few days that I actually did take the phone with me when I went to exercise. Looking at the map reminded me that I occasionally go to Bexley for bagels, that the office used to be in Hilliard, and most of the places I go to are, not surprisingly, in the northern part of the city. It's a pretty non-specific view. Then I decided to get a little more specific. You can choose individual days. Google knows that I went to a Kroger supermarket around 11.15 on the morning of the 20th of April and was home by 11.45. At 5.20, I left and drove for 29 minutes to Blacklick, stayed there until 9.13, and then drove home. The drive home took 28 minutes. I got there at 9.41. Now, you might be worried. After all, who can see this information? Well, Google is precise in specifying who has access. According to the location history page, only you can see your timeline. And it explains that the information can help you by predicting commute time and helping you to plan trips. You can also delete locations, days, or the entire timeline. It's not entirely clear, though, that deleting the timeline really deletes all the data. And although Google says only you can see your timeline, it is possible for law enforcement agencies to gain access to it. Now, don't get overly paranoid yet, because there are some significant limitations. Before getting to the limitations, let's continue to explore my timeline. And by the way, you'll see images of all these screenshots on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. In 2015, Google knew that I went to the office and then went home again in mid-June, but it didn't exactly trace my route. It just showed a straight line across the map from my house to the office and then back. That might be because Google's procedures weren't as robust four years ago, or more likely because my phone wasn't as good back then. Even so, it knew that I left for the office at 5.19 in the morning, arrived at 5.41, left at 3.02, and arrived home at 3.34. Nearly two years ago, my older daughter suffered acute and totally unexpected liver failure and received a liver transplant at the Ohio State University Medical Center. On the day of the transplant, Google knows that I was at the hospital nearly all day and even tracked some of my movements inside the hospital. It knows that I went home to feed the cats around 5 o'clock and that on the way home I grabbed a quick dinner at Wendy's. It also knows that I returned to the hospital and then eventually returned home by 10.05. The surgery was a complete success. I have told that story before, so I'm not going to repeat it here. You can see your own location history timeline. I've provided a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website that'll take you to your timeline. The timeline is essentially a best-guess approximation that's based on raw sensor vault data. So if you'd like to see the data, then you need to visit takeout.google.com. And yes, there's a link to that also on the TechBiter Worldwide website. There you'll find the history for all things Google, everything. By default, Google offers to allow you to download everything from every service. That would be a lot of data. So it's a good idea to click deselect all near the top of the page and then just select the ones you want. In my case, I scrolled down to location history, 
where you can select a KML file, which is a variant of XML, or a JSON file format. Neither format is particularly easy to use unless you have the programming skills needed to deal with it. But if you want to take a look at it, just click the checkbox, scroll to the bottom, and click Next Step. You can have Google send an email link or add the file to Drive or Dropbox or OneDrive or your Box account. The process of creating the file can take hours, or as Google notes, possibly days to complete. That depends on how much data you've requested. In my case, it took just a few minutes to get the map information back to me. When the process is complete, Google will send an email to let you know. So perhaps you're wondering what the police can see and how they can see it. Attorney Stahl says that technology such as SensorVault is being used in criminal investigations, along with the practice of tracking phone locations based on input from towers, reviewing data from smart home devices that record internet searches, and examining images stored by security cameras. But police can't launch a phishing expedition by just calling Google and saying, give me everything you've got on this Blinn character. They can get to some of the information, but only when they provide sufficient justification for the request. So let's say the police are investigating half a dozen crimes in various parts of the city. They can send a warrant to Google that specifies locations at specific times instead of usage patterns for individual users. What they will receive back from Google will be similar to the first image on the TechPider Worldwide website, the one with the red dots. Each dot in this case would represent a phone, and the phones are identified with code numbers. The data may show dozens or even hundreds of users, but maybe phones with code numbers A123B777 and R984 are recorded as being near the scenes of the crimes when the crimes occurred, although hundreds of other people might be recorded as being at one of the scenes or more, they will be of less interest to the police than the three who were in the vicinity of all the crimes at the appropriate times. Detectives can then request information about the three specific users who might have witnessed the crimes, may have committed the crimes, or might know nothing about the crimes and were just in the area. It's up to police to figure that out. Attorney Stahl says that the courts have not yet addressed concerns about the use of this kind of data. Determinations of probable cause, reliability, reasonableness, and privacy, he says, are lacking. If you want to turn location history off, or turn it on, or delete the data, visit Google's online help section. There's a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's up to you to decide whether the advantages location history have for you outweigh the potential privacy concerns. For me, they do. In looking at just a few of the days that I reviewed for this article, I remembered the terror and the relief of the week when Elizabeth was in a coma and then received a liver transplant. I thought of some co-workers that I used to see daily at the Hilliard office, and I recalled a pleasant evening at a friend's home in Blacklick. Your calculations may vary. In short circuits, the Federal Bureau of Investigation has released its annual Internet Crime Complaint Center report. The Internet Crime Complaint Center is normally referred to as IC3. 
Many, actually probably most, internet scams don't get reported. But the 20,000 that were reported caused losses of $1.2 billion. That's an increase from just under $700 million the year before. In 2018, the IC3 received more than 20,000 business email compromise reports. That compares to about 15,000 reports the year before. A BEC attack, or business email compromise, usually involves a crook who pretends to be a high-ranking company official. A common approach involves an email from somebody who impersonates the CEO. The message explains that the company is acquiring another organization, but the acquisition must be kept confidential even within the company. The CEO then asks the employee to prepare a wire transfer. Tech support fraud continues to work well, and the IC3 received 14,000 complaints from people who lost nearly $39 million. These scams usually involve either a phone call or an email from a support technician who claims that the victim's computer has been compromised. Most of the victims of this kind of fraud are individual computer users. Many are over 60 years of age. The Internet Crime Complaint Center is a website operated by the FBI where you can file a complaint. I have a link to the area where you can file a complaint on this week's TechBiter Worldwide website. You can file a complaint there if you've been victimized. Will you get your money back? Eh, probably not. But at least the FBI can investigate. And if the crooks are located in the United States, make an effort to shut them down. The number of complaints about scams purporting to be from the Internal Revenue Service or other government agencies threatening immediate arrest, unless a fine is paid by phone, have increased significantly. The crooks usually want the victim to purchase a gift card and then provide the number to the scammer. Another inventive scheme has crooks obtaining credentials that a corporate payroll manager uses to log on to a payroll processing service. They can then change the account information for one or more of the employees and have salaries direct deposited to the crook's account. The IC3 received about 900 complaints a day in 2018. Total losses for online crime was approximately $2.71 billion dollars at least for those crimes that were actually reported. If you'd like to read the IC3's annual report, it's on the FBI website. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Common practice for years has been to force users to change their passwords frequently. But frequent password changes might actually reduce security instead of enhance it. I'm familiar with a company that required password changes every 45 days. Microsoft's default system configuration gives users 60 days. Both of those periods are unfortunate. Take 45-day expirations, for example. Set a new password on Monday. It will expire 45 days later on a Saturday. And the old password won't be accepted when you return to the office on Monday, which is day 47. Then you'd have to call the IT department and have somebody reset the password. That wastes a lot of time for everybody. 
The technique I developed when I had to do this started with a password change on Tuesday with a calendar reminder 42 days later, which would also be on a Tuesday. Why a Tuesday? Well, Mondays sometimes are holidays, and I had enough vacation days that I could take about half of the Fridays off, so Tuesday just seemed like a good choice, and it still left me with three grace days if, for some reason, I couldn't change the password on Tuesday. And I chose 42, of course, not because of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but because it's evenly divisible by seven. Well, that still left another problem, coming up with a secure and memorable password every 42 days. I worked out a method for that, too, by creating passwords that had three discrete components. Three letters, upper and lower, a symbol, and a four-digit number. There were four sets of letters, four symbols, and four four-digit numbers. That gave me an array of 64 unique passwords. Each of the components could be referenced by a word that would be meaningful to me, but meaningless to anybody else, so I could write them down. What happens all too often, though, is that when people are forced to change passwords frequently, is that they use their previous password and just add a number at the end, or they create a password that's too short or one that can be guessed. I have long considered the safer method to have a long, complex password that's stored in a password manager and changed infrequently. Microsoft has now dropped the default requirement to change passwords every 60 days, at least for the Windows Server version 1903. Seems like a good idea to me. No requirements have been dropped for spare parts, so you will find it only on the website, as usual. This week, Turtle Beach has released a moderately priced set of headphones for gamers, and they include a feature that's been available only in high-priced headphones until now. Geometiles represent an attempt to make math concepts interesting and fun for students. And Creative Technologies updated Pebble Plus speakers will be of interest to those who want good computer sound, but have a limited budget. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.